Hello and welcome to The Rounds Table, a weekly podcast about major new research in medicine hosted online at healthydebate.ca. To kick off the new year, we are airing our Best of Hospital Medicine episode. This is part two. We'll be coming back to you with brand new content starting next week. Before we get to the episode, I want to just remind you to please, please take three minutes and fill out our online survey. We're very curious to hear what you think of the podcast and how we can make it better for you. You can find the survey at healthydebate.ca slash roundstablesurvey. That's all one word, healthydebate.ca slash roundstablesurvey. Thanks very much, and let's get right to the episode. Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Rounds Table, a weekly podcast about major new research in medicine. My name is Amol Verma. I'm a resident in internal medicine at the University of Toronto, and today I'm joined by Fahad Razak, who is a staff general internist at St. Michael's Hospital in Toronto and a Bell Fellow in Population and Development at Harvard. Hey, Fahad, how are you? Hey, Amal. Good to be with you again. It's great to have you. So Fahad and I are doing today part two of our special edition of the rounds table in which we are summarizing major findings from 2013 based on the American College of Physicians update in hospital medicine, which was published in the Annals of Internal Medicine. So last week, we went on a whirlwind tour of five different exciting papers, and we have a similar package of uh, options for you today. Okay, let's get started. So our topics for today are, first, we're going to talk about blood transfusion in upper GI bleeding. Secondly, we're going to talk about blood thinners after joint replacement for blood clot prophylaxis. Third, we're going to talk about new treatments for cardiac arrest. Fourth, we're going to be talking about MRSA colonization in ICU patients. And then finally, we'll talk about salt and water restriction in heart failure. So Fahad, why don't you kick us off and talk to me about blood transfusions in upper GI bleed? Okay, great. Thanks, Amal. So the first article I'm going to talk about today looked at patients with acute upper gastrointestinal bleeding and found that a restrictive transfusion strategy, waiting for patients' hemoglobin to drop below 70, had reduced mortality compared to a more liberal strategy that is waiting for patients to, or transfusing patients once their hemoglobin dropped below 90. It was published by Villanueva and colleagues in the New England Journal of Medicine. So Fahad, this has to be one of the most cited and certainly most talked about papers of the year, I think. Certainly we talk about it in medicine all the time. What did we know about blood transfusion strategies before the paper? Uh, I think you're right. This was a paper that was widely discussed on the ward, probably because we have so many patients with GI bleeds admitted to the general medicine service. Now, prior to this trial, we did have guidelines on when to transfuse for patients who were hemodynamically stable and not acutely bleeding. This was based largely on trial evidence, the most famous being the TRIP trial. And the guidelines told us that we should wait until hemoglobins drop below 70, so uh, the restrictive transfusion strategy, before transfusing our patients. Now, those guidelines and prior trials did not tell us what to do with patients with acute GI bleeds, and that's where this current randomized trial comes in. Okay, so what did they do in this trial? So in this trial, they looked at patients with acute upper gastrointestinal bleeding, and the comparison they made was between a restrictive transfusion strategy, so waiting for the hemoglobin level to decrease to below 70, versus a more liberal strategy, transfusing when the hemoglobin level was below 90. And the major outcome that they compared was all-cause mortality at 45 days. Now, what this trial found was that the restrictive strategy, so waiting for hemoglobins to drop below 70, those patients had a 5% mortality rate versus a 9% mortality rate in the liberal transfusion strategy. That's a number needed to treat of 25. 
There was a host of additional outcomes that were importantly different between these two arms. Further bleeding was lower in the restrictive group, 10% versus 16%. That's a number needed to treat of 17. Adverse offense were also lower, 40% versus 48%. That's a number needed to treat of 13. And hospital length was also shorter at 9.6 days versus 11.5 days. When they looked at total amount of blood used by patients, there was about a 60% reduction in those in the restrictive transfusion arm. So uh, pretty impressive results. And I have to say that this informs and changes practice because historically what would happen is someone would come to the hospital, they'd be bleeding. Someone would say, oh, the TRIC trial says we shouldn't transfuse them till their hemoglobin is less than 70. And then someone else would say, yeah, but the TRIC trial didn't include bleeding patients. And then we would just transfuse patients anyway, right? I feel like we used to use a lot more blood and this will sort of reduce the amount of transfusions we use certainly in routine clinical practice. Yeah, I think this is a trial which will have immediate impact. It has already had immediate impact on the way that we practice. And uh, I agree with you. With those patients with acute GI bleeds, there was a lot of fear and a lower threshold psychologically as well to transfuse them. And now we have really concrete evidence and we have a large number of outcomes that they examined that all move in the right direction, that all show benefit if you wait. Right. So uh, talk to me a little bit about specific patient subgroups. So I understand that the cirrhosis patient population seems like a restrictive strategy was even more important in patients with cirrhosis in this study. And then did they exclude, if I'm right, they excluded patients from the study who were hemodynamically unstable? Right. So what the study does not give us good information on is what to do in the hemodynamically unstable patients. And I think clinical prudence and most people would still say that you have to transfuse and and provide normal saline support until you can stop the GI bleed. And so this trial does not provide great evidence on what to do with those patients. And I think we should still transfuse as needed in that patient population. The second group of patients that people wonder about are those with pre-existing cardiovascular disease. There's some concern that allowing hemoglobin levels to drop rapidly in those with, uh, with cardiac disease may result in stress on the heart. And again, this trial unfortunately was not powered to give us information about that group. Okay, so what's the major takeaway then from this trial? So the major takeaway is that for the majority of patients with acute GI bleeds, waiting for the hemoglobin to drop below 70 is a prudent strategy. I should mention that this trial looked at patients with acute upper GI bleeds, but I think most clinicians are now extending this to lower GI bleeds. Yeah, perfect. Okay. So why don't we keep with the same theme of sort of bleeding and blood-related issues, and we'll talk about uh, venous thromboembolism or blood clot prophylaxis after hip and knee replacements. So this was called the EPCAT trial. This study showed that aspirin was not inferior to low molecular weight heparin for extended venous thromboembolism prophylaxis after joint replacement. It was a multi-center study done out of Canada, published by Anderson and colleagues in the Annals of Internal Medicine. So Mo, what did we what did we know about this patient population prior to this trial? I feel like anticoagulation is one of the most heavily studied areas recently in clinical medicine. Yeah, certainly it's gotten a lot of attention, especially in the context of new drugs like the new oral anticoagulants and uh, even low molecular weight heparin, you know, uh, in the last 15 years. So the main thing that we know about patients after major orthopedic surgery, hips and knee replacements, is that they are at very high risk of developing blood clots and that low dose anticoagulation is very effective in reducing the risk of developing blood clots. 
And so there is a question over what's the right agent to use and whether that is low molecular weight heparin or a new oral anticoagulant. Or now uh, the question is being raised again that maybe an old drug, maybe aspirin, which is not an anticoagulant, it's not a blood thinner, but it's an antiplatelet drug, obviously, uh, might be just as effective. So how did this uh, specific trial test that question? Yeah, so this was a uh, multi-center blinded randomized control trial. So they examined 778 patients who were initially treated with low molecular weight heparin for 10 days after their surgery, which is the current standard of care. And then they were randomized to either 28 days of aspirin or 28 days of continued low molecular weight heparin. In this case, it was daltaparin that they used. They looked at patients at 90 days and they found that in the two groups, five patients in the low molecular weight heparin group and one patient in the aspirin group had venous thromboembolism. So there was no difference and the rates were quite low. Their bleeding rates were also not different between the two groups. And so they used this information to come to the conclusion that aspirin was not inferior to low molecular weight heparin. So one of the things that's striking, at least in the new oral anticoagulant literature, the recent trials that have been published, are those trials are enormous. If you look at the rivaroxaban trials or the apixaban trials, how is it that this trial looked at such a small number of patients relative to those trials? Well, I think the short answer is it was not by design. So this trial was actually stopped early because of difficulty recruiting patients. And obviously, that's a really important limitation in our understanding of uh, this evidence. So when the authors initially planned this trial, they planned for a sample size of 2,200 patients, 1,100 patients in each group, using the event rate that they saw. And obviously, as a result of their difficulty recruiting, they fell significantly short. You know, they have less than a quarter, if my math is correct, of the initially intended patients. And so, of course, if we're, you know, attempting to assess non-inferiority, this becomes a real problem. Uh, yeah, totally. And the event rate also seems to be quite low when they look at the total number of events in both groups. So how is it that they're able to make a conclusive statement about whether aspirin is comparable? Yeah, I mean, to be honest, I'm not sure how they're able to make such a strongly conclusive statement. If you read the abstract of the trial alone, you wouldn't know that this is severely underpowered. When you read the uh, paper itself and you look at the editorial comment, you know, there's clear notes that we should interpret this evidence with caution. But I have to say, I feel like, you know, maybe I'm missing something here, and it's entirely possible. But I feel like they're drawing an overly strong conclusion, given the actual quality of the evidence that they have been able to obtain. Yeah, that's my impression as well, to be honest. So given that, what's your takeaway? I think the major takeaway here is that aspirin had sort of fallen off the map in terms of being a viable option for post-operative venous thromboembolism prophylaxis. And I think that this at least opens up some clinical equipoise and hopefully paves the road for future more comprehensive and more conclusive studies. Because obviously, if we could use aspirin, it would be much more convenient for patients, potentially uh, lower bleeding risk, though this trial did not bear that out. It's the same bleeding risk and ultimately much cheaper. Yeah, that would be a very important finding. And I agree with you. This does probably tip the field towards equipoise, which is 
possibly a good thing. Yeah. Okay. Let's move on. So uh, let's talk about cardiac arrest, Fahad. Tell me about a possibly new, possibly revolutionary, certainly hype-worthy treatment for cardiac arrest. Okay. So this study looked at patients who had in-hospital cardiac arrest, and it compared our standard treatment, which is compressions and epinephrine, to a treatment that also use compressions, of course, but now a cocktail of vasopressin, steroid, and epinephrine. And its major finding was that that cocktail, the vasopressin, steroid, uh, epinephrine cocktail, had improved uh, survival of patients to hospital discharge and favorable neurologic outcomes. It was published by Metzolopoulos and colleagues in JAMA. So just to be clear, when you say compressions, you mean chest compressions and not compression stockings, which is more apropos to our previous topic. How long were you waiting to use the word apropos? Tell me, honestly. I'm always waiting to use the word apropos, which <laughs> is technically right. two words if we're being pedantic. <laughs> Don't be pedantic. That, that's right. So I'm talking about chest compressions as part of the resuscitation process. Okay. So tell me what is different about this and how this study sort of came to be. What was the background information we had before? Well, prior to this study, we actually had very little evidence for things that were beneficial in in, in resuscitation, aside from aggressive chest compressions and early defibrillation. And aside from those two, few interventions have actually been shown to improve outcomes in patients with cardiac arrest. Now, this same group of investigators in a prior small study showed that this cocktail of vasopressin, steroid, and epinephrine during resuscitation may have some benefit, and that then led to this trial. And so I guess there's a couple important points about this trial being specifically, I guess, in hospital patients, which we can talk about when you tell me more about the details of the study. And I guess the other uh, important point, which if I understand correctly, there's some increasing controversy around the effectiveness of epinephrine itself and whether that actually is helpful. Yeah, so there is a broader literature uh, that examines the difference between in-hospital and out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. Certainly patients who have in-hospital cardiac arrest are a different patient population. They tend to be sicker. They tend to have higher comorbidities. So it's really not clear whether the strategies that work with them would apply equally well to patients outside of hospital. Okay, so having said that, what did this study do for our in-hospital cardiac arrest patients? So this study looked at patients in hospital who had a cardiac arrest that required standard treatment, and that would be epinephrine and chest compressions. And what it compared was the cocktail of vasopressin, steroid, and epinephrine, specifically 20 units of vasopressin, 1 milligram of epinephrine, and 40 milligrams of methylprednisolone. And they compared that to the standard treatment, which would be epinephrine. Now, if patients survived uh, the resuscitation process but were then hypotensive, The patients who got that initial cocktail of vasopressin, uh, steroid, and epinephrine then received a further steroid bolus. The other group, the epinephrine alone group, they would receive a normal saline bolus. And again, that's only if they survived the initial resuscitation but were then in shock. Now, the comparison they made was uh, looking at patients alive to hospital discharge with neurologically favorable outcomes. And the major outcome of this trial was that there was about a 14% survival to discharge with favorable neurologic outcomes in the vasopressin steroid epinephrine cocktail group versus 5% in the epinephrine group. That's a number needed to treat of nine. So I have to say, when I first read this, I thought, wow, this is practice changing. This is revolutionary. And it's time for me to put the vasopressin back in my cardiac arrest algorithm. 
And yet, when I brought it up, I was so, I was, you know, bright-eyed and bushy-tailed, and I went up to one of our intensivists at St. Michael's Hospital and asked whether this was sort of well-received by the critical care community. And she mentioned to me that, in fact, there seems to be a fair amount of skepticism about this result. So that's interesting. Um, I... Uh, I think that the critical care community will probably lead the interpretation and application of this trial. What were her specific concerns? Yeah, there's a few things. And I feel like it's maybe following in the tradition of various other critical care trials, which are initially remarkably effective and then subsequently turn out to be perhaps not as glorious as initially promised So here are the major problems with this study. Uh, The first is that there are concerns that the two groups were imbalanced. So in the group that received the treatment, uh, those patients were more likely to have cardiac arrest as a result of a heart problem rather than as a result of, say, a respiratory problem or a metabolic problem. And we know that patients who have a primary heart explanation for their cardiac arrest actually have better outcomes in hospital. So there's the possibility that the effect we're seeing is not the result of the intervention itself. So I think that's the first concern. The second concern is that they reported CPR quality in only a fraction of the patients. And as you had said, the only intervention that we really have strong evidence for is high quality CPR. And so any differences in that could have confounded your results. And then finally, and probably this is, you know, the most important criticism is that this was a multimodal intervention, and it's hard to know which element of the intervention was effective. Was it the vasopressin? Was it the steroids in the arrest? Was it the steroids after the arrest? Yeah, I, I think these are all good points. But if I could play devil's advocate and argue a bit for for this trial, I would say that Good outcomes, survival to discharge, and being in a neurologically favorable state are really rare in resuscitation. So if you look at the placebo group, only 5% make it to this outcome. So I would say in cardiac arrest, given it has such terrible outcomes, we should look on a potential therapy that could improve those outcomes a little bit more favorably. And given that cardiac arrest is still something that's common in hospital, uh, we should at least consider this trial to be part of the treatment until we have evidence to suggest that it's not beneficial. Interesting. I mean, I think that there's legitimate questions around whether this will get incorporated into our latest round of practice. There's a new 2015 American Heart Association update that's due very soon for our cardiac arrest algorithms, and we'll see if it's incorporated. I wouldn't be surprised if it's not. And I suspect that what may need to happen is some wider validation studies outside of, so this was done in three hospitals in Greece, and we may need to see some more uh, widespread implementation and testing before this really comes to the mainstream. Let's move on. So in keeping with our theme of uh, critical care, the next topic is MRSA decolonization in patients in the intensive care unit, the REDUCE MRSA trial. So this study showed that universal decolonization of ICU patients is a better strategy than targeted decolonization to reduce MRSA-associated infections. It was published by Huang et al. in the New England Journal of Medicine. So what did we know about this process before this trial? So we know that, first of all, MRSA is a pesky organism because it's multidrug resistant, it's prevalent, and it causes a fair amount of potentially serious uh, infectious complications. We also know that the current protocols in many hospitals are to identify patients who are colonized with MRSA and 
isolate them from other patients. What we also know is that isolating patients makes it more difficult for healthcare providers to contact them and is a barrier to care that has a number of unintended adverse consequences. And so there is a legitimate question as to what is the best strategy to manage MRSA colonization and reduce infections associated with both MRSA and other uh, common pathogens. Okay, so what did this trial test? Yeah, so this trial looked at 75,000 patients in 74 intensive care units across the United States in 45 different hospitals. And the hospitals were randomly assigned. It was a cluster randomized trial. So the hospitals were assigned to three groups. The first group was screening and isolation for MRSA. The second group was screening, isolating, and decolonizing MRSA-positive patients, meaning treating patients who are carrying MRSA with mupirocin and chlorhexidine. The third group was to just universally decolonize all patients in the intensive care unit, irrespective of their status in carrying MRSA or not. They compared the three strategies to a pre-intervention baseline period at each institution. And what they found was overall reduced bloodstream infections in the universal group. So the adjusted hazard ratio was 0.56, and the crude numbers were 6.1 infections at baseline and 3.6 infections after treatment of universal decolonization, so cutting it in about half. And that's infections per 1,000 days. So effectively, what they found was one bloodstream infection was prevented for every 99 patients who underwent decolonization. So in many ways, the strategy strategy advocates for wider use of antimicrobials. What concern do the authors or do you have about resistance potentially developing? Yeah, so it's interesting. I mean, the authors of the study don't really address this issue, but there have been a number of people who comment on this as a potentially problematic consequence of universally treating people with an antimicrobial, which is mupirocin, and an antiseptic wash, which is the chlorhexidine. The main concerns around resistance are really around mupirocin, which we already know that there are bugs that have resistance to mupirocin. And then there's some basic science evidence to suggest that bacteria might actually be able to acquire resistance to chlorhexidine as well. So there's certainly the possibility that this kind of a universal strategy might increase bacterial resistance. But I guess to be fair to this study, what about the alternatives? So, you know, what is the evidence for screening and isolation? And are there potentially adverse consequences of isolating patients the way that we do? Yeah, I mean, I think that we know that there are potential adverse consequences for isolation. A universal decolonization strategy is more effective and also potentially less costly. You know, it makes there's there's a compelling case. And certainly the authors from this study and the accompanying editorial recommend that we should introduce universal decolonization broadly across institutions. I feel like before we take that step, though, there has to be a fairly sophisticated cost-benefit analysis, don't you think? Yeah, I agree. I think the other really important point of caution for those of us not in the United States is that, you know, the background prevalence of MRSA is a really important 
component here. And we know that in the United States, rates of MRSA colonization are significantly higher than certainly the rates are in Canada. And so I would be cautious in necessarily importing that strategy without some local information. Yes, totally agree with you. All right. So I think the implication here is that this is a potentially important change in the way we manage MRSA infections, uh, but perhaps not yet at the stage where it's going to influence certainly practicing Canadian hospitals, though I expect it will certainly affect the way American hospitals care for their patients. All right, let's move on to our last topic for the day. So our last topic is about sodium and water restriction in heart failure. So this was a small randomized control trial that showed that patients on strict sodium and fluid restriction in hospital did not have better outcomes than patients on normal diets. And this study was published by Aliti and colleagues in JAMA Internal Medicine. So give us a bit of background, Amal. What was the state of evidence prior to this trial? Yeah, so this is a fairly controversial topic, actually. There's a large amount of physiologic evidence that tells us that excessive sodium intake is bad for cardiovascular health, including recently published evidence from the massive PURE study in the New England Journal of Medicine. But how sodium intake affects people who already actively have heart failure is not entirely clear. The vast majority of guidelines for management of heart failure recommend a a restrictive low-sodium, low-water diet, but there's very limited evidence for this recommendation. And in fact, there's preliminary evidence in chronic heart failure that salt restriction to a severe degree might actually be harmful for patients because of the body's compensatory mechanisms to increase sodium retention, which just worsen the heart failure. That's interesting. In fact, one of the findings from the Pure Papers was that severely restricted sodium diets also had increased mortality. So perhaps some concordance with what you're describing here. Yeah, absolutely. So what did these investigators do? So this was a very small study. This was 75 patients who were admitted with systolic heart failure, and they randomized patients to a strict salt diet, which was less than 800 milligrams of sodium, and less than 800 milliliters daily of fluid, which is like draconian, and otherwise to a normal diet. They looked for a primary outcome of weight loss or clinical congestion based on a validated score at three days after randomization. And they found no difference between the groups in those two primary outcomes. They also looked at a couple of secondary outcomes, including patient thirst and readmission. And unsurprisingly, the restricted group was significantly more thirsty than the other group and had a trend toward increased readmission. So I have to say their choice of surrogate outcomes to hang their study on, to me, are fairly strange. Weight loss and clinical congestion score, those don't really seem to be the most important clinical outcomes we would track. Yeah, I mean, I guess if you're looking for, in a small study, you're trying to find some surrogate that you can see a fair amount of difference on at a short period of time, presumably this is designed as like a hypothesis-generating study, right? And so I think, you know, uh, weight loss is certainly something that you target in diuresis for acute heart failure, Uh, and a congestion score speaks to patient symptoms. So I don't think they're totally unreasonable. I do think, however, that they're not the kind of outcomes that we would change clinical practice on, don't you think? Yeah, for sure. But I also don't think we're going to try to change clinical practice on a study of 75 patients. That's fair. That's fair. The other thing that was a bit concerning was when the randomization occurred in this study. 
From what I read, it was 36 hours after admission, which seems fairly long since a lot of the acute management of heart failure starts immediately on admission. Yeah, I think that's right. I think that there's a, that's an important limitation to the study. I think the main thing here is, listen, they're tac- tackling a uh, long-held belief that sodium restriction is good in heart failure and trying to bring some evidence to suggest that maybe we need to reopen the question. So sort of like our aspirin study that we discussed previously, you think this study tips the evidence base towards equipoise rather than answering a question? Correct. I think that's exactly right. I certainly wouldn't draw any strong conclusions from this study, but I think, I mean, having said that, actually, I think that our clinical intuition would tell us that being overly draconian in the, you know, salt restriction that we enforce on these patients is probably not helpful there's sort of accumulating evidence to suggest that. And I might say in the absence of that evidence, why not default people to at least a more relatively normal diet and recognizing that there is equipoise and that until some study tells me to be like harsh to my patients, I prefer to just, you know, let them be reasonable in their approach to salt moderation. So you think that this study really points uh, to further study needed for the salt component, not the fluid component? Yeah, I mean, I guess we should, you can't separate the two. Yeah, and I think that's the difficulty, right, with a study like this. So really, if you wanted to answer this question, I think you'd have to do separate studies on salt, water, and potentially both. Sure, I could imagine a two-by-two factorial study. Seems like that's where this evidence base is taking us. Yeah, we can only hope. Okay, thanks, Will. Okay, so that brings us to the end of our second whirlwind tour and completes our review of the American College of Physicians update in hospital medicine. So hopefully now we are all completely up to date on the major findings from 2013. Thanks, Amal. It was great to do this with you. Yeah, likewise. And I have to say, so 2013 obviously predates the rounds table, but I look forward to the 2014 edition and see how many of these papers we will already have covered in our routine day-to-day podcasting. Yeah, that'll be fun to see. Okay, take care, Fahad. Talk to you soon. Take care.